Guten Tag, enthusiastic humans. We are Enthusiasm.World, a Berlin-based discussion podcast that aims to liberate consciousness by deconstructing modern themes and exploring new modes of existence. A disclaimer, our equipment is basic, our studio is everywhere, we are a non-professional collective, often comprised of strangers, with the aim of promoting the art of casual but significant conversations. Call us amateurs, call us dreamers, just don't call us bored. I'm your host, and there are plenty of us to go around. That is to say, today's theme is transitioning to a post-scarcity world. Netflix, Wikipedia, car to go 3D printers. What do these things share in common? They're harbingers of a post-scarcity economy, a civilization in which most goods can be produced in abundance with minimal human labor needed so that they become available to all very cheaply for rent or even freely. A ubiquitous example of this is Spotify. For 10 euros a month, it's possible to stream unlimited music. Not just 20 years ago, one couldn't buy a CD at that price. Where will the next 20 years take us? How might a post-scarcity economy alter the fabric of society? What about our attachment to work, the need for something to do in order to feel useful? Are we rushing headlong into a crisis of meaning that could result from dramatically shorter work weeks or optional employment? What steps can we take today to facilitate this potential future? Can you even imagine a world in which goods are freely available? Wake up, turn on printer, request breakfast and new toothbrush? Our group met at Berlin's buzzing Klunkerkranich venue, a sprawling bar and techno club located on the top of a parking garage which often hosts several simultaneous DJs. People are drawn to its sweeping views of Die Hauptstadt, and much like Tempelhofer felt, it's a veritable playground. I must say though, upon arriving I was a bit concerned. I only found a single empty standing table tucked in a corner, hidden behind throngs of Berliners and tourists soaking up the sunlight started to doubt my choice of venue, but then again we celebrate our on-the-go nature and this is about as raw a recording location as it gets. No worries, I was soon joined by what appear to be two members from our meetup.com group, but we're actually a Canadian couple on vacation. I don't know their names as we are evolving more and more into an anonymous come-who-may collective, but they both worked in radio production with keen ears to the zeitgeist and were therefore very welcome contributors. Moments later, two guys from California joined, one an anthropologist. And with this serendipitous meeting of minds, we were set for takeoff, beginning with the anthropologist, followed by the eager Canadians. So that's a great, that's a great point that he brought up just now. Is the question actually about post-scarcity? Like, are we actually in a moment of post-scarcity, or is this simply like a symptomatic of Western privilege? Like, there's still plenty of scarcity in places we don't see, it's just displaced geographically into developing countries, right? Like, you know, there's plenty of like massive labor populations, uh, in, like second and third tier cities in China, India, who are still producing things, still have like very much a material economy based on this stuff. But we just don't see like we have the ability to say everything is provided, whereas those people don't necessarily have. So you could say it's post scarcity for some. But the real issue, but we could just go with it and say, yes, it's post-scarcity. Moving that direction if we assume all these other countries will eventually reach a similar point and we'll have robotics and yada, yada, yada. Uh, but I wonder, like, you know, historically capitalism is run on a state of scarcity explicitly to keep the labor population, like, make them obey and make them work and make them continue and keep, you know, society moving without, like, huge protests and such. But if you remove that scarcity element, how do you maintain that? How do you maintain a labor force that's now no longer needs to work at anything, right? Like, certain sectors of the economy now are moving towards this, and we call it the knowledge economy, right? Like, tech workers, what do they really produce? It's hard to say, like, some digital ephemeral thing, but... This counts actually for a huge amount of capital, but in terms of like human value, does it actually count for that much? Like, does this widget on my phone bring me the same amount of value as say, uh, I don't know, uh, a hamburger that a farmer like raised the cattle for and some other farmer made, you know, the lettuce and the bread, etc., which immediately nurtures your body. But this other thing seems like sort of like an ephemeral value that we sort of 
I don't know, misappropriate the value to. So I don't know, it's an open question whether or not the economy will continue to move in this direction because at some point there will always be a, a level of scarcity. The question is for who? What's this? This is my own bent because I'm a, I'm a labor activist as well. Um, and like what that means, like what does post-scarcity mean for the future of the labor movement, right? Because you were saying earlier, it's just like, we have these structures to keep people working for different reasons. And if, you know, actual post-scarcity just means people don't have to go into work, then how are you going to control your labor force, right? And that's, that's what I don't necessarily, I haven't thought about what that looks like in 30 years when you have time for actual rapid systemic change, just at the rate it's happening. And I can't imagine what that looks like within my lifetime, because right now you have things like Cardigo that are automated in some way, but they're also, I mean, I love Cardigo and I use it because I can't afford to own a car, but at the same time, I know that it's disruptive maybe in, a, in less of a direct way than Uber is to like other working industries, but it's still, I'm trying to imagine what the what a post-scarcity society means for uh, laborers and the labor movement within my own lifetime. And I I don't quite know what that will mean because I don't think it means that laborers will have, or workers will have time to, you know, work five-hour weeks. I think it will still be very stratified, uh, stratified and that's based on, you know, how much is your labor worth, right? Yeah, so I, I don't know what it means for people who are already on the bottom rung. Uh, like what post-scarcity means for people who are already doing the most menial of jobs that right now we need to kind of keep everyone else going, whether that's cleaning or cooking or any any of those things that are often disqualified as meaningful labor, but without them, you kind of end up with cities at standstills. I think that you have an existential issue first because you like run into the issue of like, how do you define value? Because right now we define value as like, as deeply related to struggle and the finite nature of like resources. So if you move into a post-scarcity situation or world or whatever, then you have to redefine like sort of what, how you value things. Yeah. And then fundamentally, like the issues you're talking about with labor are totally related to capitalism or the structure that we have. And so if you're going to like, yeah, this is what I was, the issue I was bringing up at the beginning, which is like, if you move into post-scarcity with this like stratified structures that we currently have, then you're just going to have the benefits of that pooled into smaller, into small areas. And you're not going to have any quality of, of uh, the, the benefits of a post-scarcity thing. So ideally you would have a different system whereby everyone can have a guaranteed income, like guaranteed housing, uh, and then can be like engaging with the world at through which like in, in ways that they feel are like make sense for them or whatever. But that like but that concept requires like radically rethinking who and what we are and how we approach things. Like but that's in a post scarcity society, would we already be radically rethinking? Who we but are he's saying we're entering like we're in a post scarcity. Like that's where we're going right now. Well, that's where we're headed. That means we you know fully in it, right? Because it has to it has to self realize. I, th I think we're in it, uh, comparatively speaking. If we look back, you know, yeah. even Compared not even one generation, ago, yeah. Yeah. or even ten years. Yeah, yeah like honestly, awesome. since like having, I was trying to remember how I traveled before Google Maps. I'm like, I wrote things down. I guess yeah. like I Real used maps. a map. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a good point about sort of a lack of imagination for mm -hmm. what's next. I feel like that that's probably in a podcast that you already covered. <laughs> But, uh, can we get can we get imaginative here? What would a post-scarcity society look like to you, or potentially in general? Just I mean, to compare... me, like it would be like yeah, maybe. No, no, uh, because they have to replicate. That's exactly what they are. That's the whole reason Star Trek works is because it's post-scarcity. But like, but it's also tied in with this idea that humans like got over their shit, and it's like that's the that's the MacGuffin of that fucking series where they're like, oh yeah, this all worked. We just figured it we, out. Everything yeah. was okay because like yeah. we didn't need to fight we over, over the things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, ideally, I feel like post scarcity would mean that people have access to the necessities without having to fucking grind it out. You know, like that you can afford to live and be housed and be properly fed and educated and live a good life without that constant hustle. And I think right now we are absolutely still in the constant hustle, more than, almost, in some ways more than ever because 
things are starting to crumble, but that means it's affecting the, like either the most vulnerable or people who maybe a generation ago would have been pretty set, right? But now the idea of a secure job, like for me, the idea of ever owning property, it's like, well, it's not going to happen. Like that's just not a reality for me anymore, right? Um, it's only because you don't want to live in that one county that's like selling all that property real cheap. Yeah, real picky yeah, I about mean, it. Yeah, I'm real picky about it. But like, <laughs> no, like to do my job in a, a space where I want to be, like there's not the idea of job security, the idea of that kind of financial security or having a pension, all those things, like that is that has crumbled. And I think it's crumbling because we're in the middle of this shift that's going to take a while to be actually realized, right? Late, late capitalism. Yeah, it's late. Yeah, probably late stage capitalism. Yeah, let's define yeah. that. I mean, like, this the, I keep on making the same point over and over again, but like, we already exist in a post scarcity society. The wealth that we like, that we make, that 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 we are able to harness as a, as humanity is so vast. It is more than enough for everyone to be fucking living a decent life. It is the fact that we don't properly, uh, that it isn't shared equitably, that it isn't uh, given, like people aren't given access to it. Like we already live in a world that we are able to develop uh, and and like pull out enough wealth and shelter and food and everything to, to deal with everyone, but we don't. So we're already there. So how do you shift it so that we can imagine it? Revolution! <laughs> Not joking. That's everything. Burn it all down. Eat the rich. Yes. Uh, I mean, this is this is the thing. It feels hard to imagine what a future looks like beyond the utopian version of it, right? Where it's just like it would be really great if everyone could like grow old and not worry about accessing healthcare or housing or you know, especially when you live in cities where it's like very much like I live in a city where street homelessness is 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 huge. Like it's just very. Like coming here, I was like, wow, I like hardly see anybody living in their car or living in tents or living on the street. And that's um, has been like this weird relief of just being like, oh, are people here like able to live? Uh, which does not feel the case in the city I live in. So, you know, in my utopian view, like post-scarcity is a way where we've just figured out how people can can afford to live, like that they're taken care of at least to a basement amount that people can actually live without this idea of being a worker, right? right. Yeah. yeah. There seem to be two sides here, uh, or two different areas that we're focusing on. One is post-scarcity and the other is post-work. And... There was an argument uh, in an article that I read online that the two are not connected, they're not synonymous, that in a post-scarcity society, we will still have to work. We will still want to work because work is something that gives us purpose. Is it like working for somebody else or is it work as in like... Maybe work is just hanging out at cafes and having a beer. Exactly. Work could be leisure, I would say. It's, it takes effort to, uh, you have to meet up with someone, schedule a time. Sit, no, but I mean, for the vast majority of people, I mean, like, actually, not for some, for, for, I would argue everyone. I mean, like, if you think about it, like, the work that you do, you, you have to do in order so that you can eat and pay rent. Like, that's what work is right now. And so when we talk about post-scarcity, there isn't a divide between those two, if you're defining it like that. If you want to define work as something else, I'm down to hear what your definition is, but... Just hanging out. <laughs> what? Just hanging out. Yeah, just hanging out. That would be a great definition if you could make it. I mean, but that like that would be hanging out. That would be. I mean, like, okay. Do they have to be opposites? Potato, potato. Let's get creative. That we talk a lot about in our like personal context is working jobs versus making work. So like we're people who make audio documentaries, and then in our you know when we're not working on those projects, we do like the daily grind of in our case, daily news, and that feels like work, because there's a lot of bullshit that goes with it, and you never really can give enough context in a minute and 30 seconds to something that deserves actually unpacking, and like, that feels like work, whereas like, working on larger projects, to me, it is definitely, it's definitely work, but it doesn't feel like a job, you know what I mean? Like, it doesn't feel like a grind, it feels like a... So maybe it comes down to meaning. Yeah, like, how do you find your How do you find a meaning in life, really? Ooh, yeah. Which is a time, timeless, age-old question. Theoretically, we, you could say it's a post-scarcity society now, in the sense that nobody actually needs to really work too much. Like, everybody could work maybe five hours a week, and we still manage to produce a high amount of goods and commodities to supply everybody with what they need to get by. We could have a leisure economy now. 
But the real question is why don't we? Because for certain classes, it's certainly, thing, you know, capital is scarce, resources are scarce within different countries and around the globe. So it's a matter of distribution. Have you guys, uh, have you guys read uh, David Graeber's new book, Bullshit Jobs, A Theory? He's an anthropologist, an anarchist, came up with that phrase, we are the 99%. Obviously his whole like take is like, it's about the 1%, controlling labor, pop controlling populations. But like, he does a pretty good survey of all the sort of like high class jobs that don't really do anything valuable necessarily, not obviously, like people sitting in front of computers looking at spreadsheets all day. And his conclusion is like, these jobs simply exist to maintain class structures, right? Which is like not a super profound insight, but I think it's a, it's a fair point. I detected a trend among this early dialogue. Value, value, value. How do we define it and how should we reimagine it? An existential question indeed, as value runs parallel to one's personal sense of worth. It validates that what we do is meaningful or useful, the very nature of purpose. The sci-fi series Star Trek was briefly mentioned as an example of a fictional post-scarcity society in which, as one of our participants said, humans got over their shit, whether that be inequality, bigotry, or egomania. For them, value becomes tied to personal enrichment and the advancement of collective intelligent life. Now, the majority of our group argued that we already exist in a post-scarcity society, but it's largely enjoyed by Western-class populations and hasn't had time to ripple into remote corners of the world. Now, finally, we touched on the post-scarcity, post-work correlation. Now, this called for a definition of work, which our Californian anthropologist proceeded to redefine as just hanging out, having a beer. Meaningful leisure? Could we consider work in this way? Uh, perhaps we should consider how we spend our energy as work, as there is only a limited amount each day, and the expenditure of energy, even if spent during spirited conversation over beers, is rendered by this definition, work. I mean, like, I think that anything that you do, so like anytime there's a hurdle in your job when there's difficult, like you feel value in like doing it. When like in your personal life, let's say you like want to like climb a mountain or whatever, like the value that comes from it, it comes from the challenge that you overcome, the struggle that you work through. Uh, if you look at it like in a more traditional context, like the gathering of food, so like whether it's a traditional hunt. Like so where I live, they just recently hunted a bowhead whale, a 40-foot whale with harpoons and, and, uh, and, and what's called and, uh, and a rifle. And the difficulty of that makes it worth more. Like they hunt lugas, they hunt, like they, they fish uh, char, like that's all stuff that they do on a regular basis. And the challenge in doing that makes that value. But like, is it the challenge or is it like the whole complexity of like the ritual and like performing something that, you know, your community has been doing for generations? Maybe the challenge is wrapped up in that, I would agree. But I don't know if it's the only thing. I wouldn't argue that it's the only thing. I think there's a lot of different parts that we tie into it. But like when we're coming back to this idea of post-scarcity, if you take away the struggle to achieve things, then we have to define things and add, like apply value to them in a different format. And I don't think that's something that we're prepared for. I mean, like I don't know if you've ever done the thought experiment of imagining what would it be like if we lived in this like a Star Trek-like society where you could just replicate anything, or if we moved into a society where anything like if you imagine if you do the thought experiment, like if you could have anything that you wanted like with no effort it just could come then like what does it matter that you have Jordans versus you have shitty flip-flops it doesn't because there isn't any struggle there isn't any value to the thing so what about distinction that's what it, like all right so this philosopher French philosopher Pierre Bourdieu he says that society is actually all about distinction it's not really about struggle it's only about looking different from everyone else around you, having something that defines you as different from the rest, right? Whether that is a Jordan Kicks or whatever. So like, I don't know, in a replicator society in Star Trek, you even have distinction in that, like utopian space, right? Distinction in command, distinction in like functional roles between like say the doctor and, and uh, number one or whatever. Right, so, so to be a doctor versus to be a commander versus to be these different things, like the differentiation in there is the work it took to be and like the, the skill it took to be the best at those things. Again, those are the challenges and struggles that you have to overcome to be at that position or role. I'm out of beer. Scarcity. We gotta get you a beer. That's gonna solve. Yeah, scarcity. <laughs>
Yeah, it's a complex topic, and I think it's there's no one answer to it. And uh, you know, I mean, now we're really just talking about the metaphysics. We're just talking about like the metaphysics of what it means to have like a meaningful life and like have an identity in postmodern society. But know. then we just redefine scarcity, right? Because we're talking about class distinction or whatever versus the lack of the lack of scarcity for material goods and uh, you know economics or whatever. But we have this new scarcity of identity because we need to Ooh, that's find a cool idea. we need to find something that separates us right. or, or divides us somehow or sets us apart in other ways that aren't economic but are more social because maybe you have some knowledge but uh, everyone has the same ability to get up there materialistically in a material way and then maybe scarcity becomes a lack of identity versus a lack of material goods or scarcity of fixed identity perhaps yeah or maybe maybe there's a lack of uh, scarcity to fix identity in that way. Everything becomes watered down because you can quickly change your identity because you can have this replicator that gives you something to increase your economic status on the fly or something, increase your emotional feeling, produce drugs or uh, materials to build something or, or buy something, and then all of a sudden, you have a scarcity of uh, not only identity but, but but time in a way because everything gets sped up and you don't have an ability or struggle related to that time to achieve something. So then everything becomes watered down and diluted in a way. Yeah, time is a good one. But I think like going back to materialistic understanding of it, it's like for me, post-scarcity is sort of going back in time and becoming a hunter-gatherer where you had all the materials you needed to survive. You didn't have to work, maybe you had to work like two hours a day to gather berries, but then you gathered them all in one day and you didn't have to do that the rest of the week or whatever. Uh, and everyone was on the same equal footing in the tribe. But uh, yeah. maybe we're getting back to that because of robots that can do it for us, and then we don't have to think about it, but then we have to define ourselves because as humans we always have to define ourselves in a way. And then maybe we have a scarcity of ideas in that sense. But then maybe the lack of uh, scarcity of materialistic things opens up a newfound creativity because what are we going to do with all that time that we've created already? This is an interesting angle is um, thinking about intangible assets or the, va like the value of time, the value of compassion, of just spending time with, with others, loved ones and family. And um, yeah, that's that might ultimately uh, prove to be the the greatest form of value in a future where all of our physical material needs are, are taken care of. Or, or even a darker note, maybe we have a scarcity of humanity when we don't have the same invested struggle in our collective survival because we don't need that same working class to bring us those resources, right? So maybe we become more disposable in a way because everyone can have access to an experience that may be elusive to others. You see this a lot in, in science fiction dystopian themes, you know, novels like Altered Carbon is a good example where you have lack of inequality but you still have like the replicator-esque thing that can create things and yeah, so I don't know how we balance that either because there is scarcity there in a way. Or they're post-scarcity because they have so much technology, but there's equality problems. But then again, there's also a lack of a devaluation of the human beings in life, right? So the scarcity there is more about humanity. That was another question I had was, would conflict still exist in a post-scarcity world? Would we still be fighting about shit? And if so, what would it be, you know? Obviously, there would still be conflict, right? We, uh, religious okay. crusades again. Yeah. We'll get bored and find something to fight There's over. There's always something to fight over, <laughs> sadly. Hopefully we can reduce it as much as possible. Struggle adds value, or perceived value. Having overcome or accomplished something as our own hero's journey, a powerful way to build character. This was the sentiment suggested at the top of round two. It was argued that this profound sense of achievement would not be possible in a post-scarcity society that lacks challenge. Furthermore, we covered the concept of distinction which results from overcoming challenges that then provide us with some position of respect or status within the public domain. Distinction is intrinsic to any class system, past, present, or presumably future. 
But if material goods were made freely available and everyone was left to create their own meaning, their own distinction, and class structures were flattened, what could possibly be scarce? At this point, the Californian anthropologist's friend chimed in with a gripping notion, scarcity of identity as the next hurdle in the evolution of ownership. That is to ask, when material ownership is no longer a question, how do we define ourselves or stamp our unique personality on the world? More intangibles followed. Scarcity of ideas? Of time? One might deduce that these are the challenges that'll keep us journeying forward. Time management, ingenuity, creative self-expression. At this point, our pop-in North American guests left to scope out the venue and our meetup members took center stage. If we are creating a scarcity now, it would be an environmental scarcity where we are overfishing and uh, deforestation and pollution. So this handling of resources actually will lead to scarcity again, I suppose. If you consider the loss of biological diversity, deforestation of whole landscapes, it will take a while to recover those, those resources and I suppose this will be again something that we will miss and we will feel it all, all over the, uh, the world. So we have everything we need but we, are, uh, we don't have a good handling of our resources. We are really losing a lot every year. So while our basic needs are covered, I guess the problems are becoming more complex and if we have uh, inequality then maybe it's uh, inequality of quality. You have let's say organic food and you have uh, genetically modified food which makes you sick. So there is a lot but there is also a lot of difference between the resources you might be able to get and it's more maybe of a social component to it. What are you able to afford and in what country do you live and is your country able to protect your natural resources. So although we have everything I think environmental resources are scarce again. There's a larger picture here, right? You think about the age of the Earth, 406 billion years. Yeah. The human history is really trivial, tiny bit. Because mm. there are all, all the things that happened. Where there's desert now, there used to be oceans, right? All the continents used to be together. Yeah. All this human need stuff in comparison of nature is really uh, infinitesimal, right? right? Yeah. So the, the, the human needs aspects, nature doesn't give a shit about what humans need. Mm. It's all up to the humans to manage it. Mm. Most of the corporations are very competent. Imagine the idea that the hunter-gatherer society experienced less scarcity than we have now is ludicrous. Now we can walk into Lidl, buy bread for 15 cents. That is unimaginable in a hunter-gatherer society. Yeah, true. Even 200 years ago. <laughs> people who have to work all day for 8, 12, 16 hours just to get that bread. Just to have a handful. Yeah, right. yeah, right, yeah. No, I see it from that standpoint. I think it was just a poetic notion that, uh, yeah, I mean, if you're living in the jungle 12,000 years ago. Food, it's right there. Yeah. You reach out, you it might but be more poetic. Definitely not, not but no, truth, it's not. Right. right well, well, that's my argument, though, is that we've always existed in post scarcity society or in a society where things aren't so extremely life, scarce, right? but we're moving further and further towards little to no scarcity. So that was the premise for this uh, this meetup. This uh, okay, so I just want to sw switch gears because part of the the aim of this podcast is to be imaginative about the topics. Can we imagine a post scarcity society that allows us to? have a system of globally shared resources, so much so that maybe the nation-state no longer exists. You have, to, you have to remember that the whole concept of nation-state only came into being a few hundred years ago. Before then, there's just uh, people everywhere speaking different languages, governed by different kingdoms, they have very porous borders, they trade with each other right, all across the globe. Whereas um, the whole concept 
of a unified entity as a country, as a nation, with its own borders, with its own unified language, with its own economy, its own laws. That is a very recent invention. I'm sure that people will want equality and identity every time. And if they, uh, they find a solution to represent this in a different form, then states may disappear. But also states are instruments of power struggle. I mean, their desires may be directed by some ruling classes or some, uh, some aristocrats or some uh, oligarchs to some other channels that may create a different world. I, I don't think states are directly related with postcarsity. It's related with more with power and equality issues, identity issues. Would post-scarcity economy dissolve the borders? Would it help us to overcome this competitive spirit and start to look at a broader picture of what, what society could be? What see it's definitely in both ways. Right? If you look at what was leading up to the First World War, was this, the Black and the Serbs who want to unite all the Yugoslavs. They're kind of a similar people speaking similar languages. Now they're classified as uh, different languages, but albeit now all different countries. And they could have been united as Germany, right? As a unified people. And they would have his maybe economical benefits, sort of collective defense, etc., etc. But it was a failed project. And now we're looking at this at, at a larger scale, maybe at the European Union. What is the benefit of having a united market? Let's say you can get Netflix everywhere. But now Netflix is becoming also a media empire. It's, it's investing in all these independent shows in different countries. Say in German shows, in Danish shows, in Finnish shows. I hope that's not the only benefit. Huh? I hope that's not the only benefit. Right? But it has, the market has two sides. It has to appease to the local population to say they want to watch a show in German maybe. But also they have access to all the other hundreds of shows. I wonder if technology is sort of a lubricant, some, something that facilitates that people are able to consume things produced elsewhere. Now, we are already a very connected economy. I don't know whether it's made of, but it's probably not Germany. Maybe, maybe something is made in Germany, right? I think we also have the freedom to travel and about uh, knowledge. We already do share quite a bit of knowledge, uh, let's say, in the European Union. Students are traveling all the time or are having one or two um, years in another city, in another country. The other question is, however, some solutions you can only apply locally, you can only find locally, because, let's say, geography is different, uh, ecological system is different, so the question is, how much do you want to open up, or at what point does it make sense to open up the knowledge market, and at what point it's really just for local purposes only. Because you were asking to combine a lot the knowledge of everyone, everywhere, sure. But to what extent is, does it make sense? Borders, the borders are only a result of having these di diagonally different economies, right? Let's say within the, within the OECD, within the developed countries, or within the European Union, the economies, they can be very similar to each other, then there's not much of a need of a, not much of a need of a border. Let's say within Germany, there are poorer regions, there are richer regions, but people are free to move across the different regions. Because they, they either they have a political will to have this unity across the countries, or they have decided that it's better for the economy based on the net results of having this exchange. How does that work over uh, national borders? If, if you think about some, somewhere like China, the, even the internal migration is tightly controlled. Right? It's even tighter than across national borders. Because the economic system is much more authoritarian into having the rural areas and the urban areas. 
now the magnifying glass had been held over scarcity itself, revealing present-day realities, diminishing natural resources, lack of quality when it comes to bare essentials like food and water, social systems. We undoubtedly agreed that nature is neutral and it's our job to manage resources, to share whenever possible, as would be taught during coloring hour in elementary school. Don't hog the cherry red or sky blue. When I asked about whether nation-states might disappear in a post-scarcity world, question marks spilled onto the table. And it seemed that identity was yet again tied up in this discourse. It's not only about material goods and well-being of global populations, but cultural associations, complex economic positions, and political power struggles, a structure that's hard to fathom eliminated. It remains, however, that nation-states are a new concept, and if their creation was possible, then so is their dissolution, and smart alternatives that any of Earth's 7 billion inhabitants can brainstorm. At this point, darkness descended, volume sliders pushed upwards, bass swept across our table, every centimeter of available seating claimed across the rooftop. Enthusiasm full steam ahead. I've actually heard this uh, podcast from Quincy Larson. has an initiative called uh, Free Coder Camp. It's basically teaching people how to program and get some of the new jobs, right? In, in one of his podcasts, he discussed uh, post-scarcity society. He raised the examples of, first, Wikipedia, right? A lot of people writing articles on their own time. And then also Craigslist. Craigslist is mostly free, it's like a 30-some billion dollar company that has uh, only a few dozen people and the founder still does customer support. He says they they were able to generate so much revenue just by charging maybe less than 1% of the corporations who are posting jobs, for example. So I imagine these, these examples, they say, it's either someone donating their time, doing something as a hobby, writing Wikipedia articles, or it's the benevolence of some corporation, to say like um, Craigslist, they're able to not charge people. If you give it to some other corporation, they might be charging everyone outrageous amounts to post ads. And those examples, they only apply to the technology area. It's because in these areas, people are able to extract more leverage. They have some skills, they can build a service, they can provide the service to millions and millions of people with maybe just two servers. Or they can write a Wikipedia article that's that's read by millions of people. How does that apply to other areas? This comes back to... This is a question. This is a great question. What, What you mentioned about the subscription businesses. Right now, most of the businesses try to move to subscription because it's more appealing to investor because it has predictability. Because the revenue can be predicted for many, many years and people like that. They want to put money into such businesses. Where does the predictability come from? It comes from the central theorem of statistics. The more people you have, let's say you have a buffet, you have an open bar on a boat. You don't know how much people drink, right? Some people drink a lot, some people don't drink a lot. But the more people you have, it's more predictable. If you have 10 people, you don't know the, the amount. If you have 100 people, you can almost, within a certain precision, to know how much you can stop to provide for this. This is sort of like the business model of Netflix or Spotify. They have a lot of, uh, lot of users, large base, so they can use that to roll the cost forwards. But uh, if you think about the same example, say in Finland, they have all these university cafeterias. You go there, eat for two euros 60, for example, uh, lunch. If we can apply that on a large scale, these are all managed by corporations, right? They're they're companies, they're very competent at making things efficient. They hire chefs, they hire service people, they hire cleaners, they make everything run. And the customer, what they get is they go there, they pick up a plate, they get the salads, they get like a buffet, right? Because there's so many people in the system, they can predictably run it at a certain cost. So if you imagine that, how, what if we roll that out, say, in Australia, to have a cafeteria system, national, nationally run cafeteria system, maybe with a few companies, that people can eat for $2 per lunch, 
or dinner or breakfast, right? And then, then people don't have this um, grocery problem anymore. <laughs> but it, it, even if you don't have any money, maybe there will be a basic in income system, right? You can eat for a few hundred dollars a month based on this sort of a pooling system, which is happening everywhere, even with Lyft or Uber. They have this flat rate, all-you-can-ride system, right? You can ride anywhere for $2.99, which is, if I think about it, right? in 1995 in China, in Beijing, maybe, there are people that are running illegal taxis for about the same price. Right now, people are not, the driver's not earning that much. But maybe when it's automated, this thing will become much cheaper and it will all make sense. But now we can move around San Francisco or the Bay Area for two or three dollars. That was previously unimaginable. Is, I mean, the pre predictability is the uh, main reason, do you think? Predictability or tendency of the, those large number of customers are easier, you say, and is that the main reason for cheapness? This comes back to almost the question of distribution. In a system, someone's always paying more, someone's always paying less. Let's say we go on ride the BVG, the public transport system, and we all have the monthly ticket. Someone always rides more during the month, someone always rides less, right? It's always like a part of the customer base subsidizing the other part. Right? So if you go to a buffet, someone eat more, someone eat less. Overall, it sort of evens out, even though there are some kind of differences. And society tends to either compensate for this by some kind of social system or by commercial system with a large number of customers. Ride the wave of technology. It leads the way in providing examples of operating post-scarcity-esque models, Craigslist, Wikipedia, Netflix, and car-sharing app-based services. We don't pay for this education, this advertising space, and very little for the opportunity to rent a bicycle on demand for an hour or two. Our conversation had come full circle, back to my intro statement, nudging it further by proposing that people might follow suit and donate time, wisdom, ideas, or simply exchange compassion rather than money. Will there be something called debt uh, in post-scarcity uh, world? Oh yeah, what would debt be in a post-scarcity world? That's a that's a question. Maybe that's what we could end. We could end with that one, I think. Uh, it, well, what do you what do you think of debt? What is the nature of debt? Borrowing money. I mean, if you need money somehow, that means you want something you don't have. Yeah. And uh, therefore, this is uh, this is a question. I think, will someone need extra money? Will someone go to the bank and say, "I need ten thousand euros for that"? If there, it's a postcard world, then nobody with, would need extra money. Most across Germany, most people think about debt as a negative thing, right? Yeah. But debt is an essential ingredient in the economy. Let's say you discover some new business, now people want beer, and you want to serve them beer, they want to buy it for five euros, and you can import them for one euro each. You want to buy 10,000 beers, and there are people waiting to buy these beers. Where do you get the 10,000 euros, right? You have to raise some kind of debt. So it's a temporary, it's, a, it's a, like a system of the capital going around into areas where there's new growth possibilities. Everything will be abundant. You 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 won't uh, invest in beer business in any business, and you because everything is very cheap. I mean, everything is like water. I mean, like like uh, like snow uh, in winter. I mean, you don't you don't you cannot invest on anything. Yeah, well, maybe there will be a different financial system, for lack of a better word, to finance the new ventures. Instead of putting capital into it, you have some other way of putting people volunteering into that business, uh, bring you beer. Uh, maybe maybe we're in debt for time. You know, we owe someone our time to uh, commit to a project or to. Time is a very tricky thing, right? And people are maybe simultaneously. Happy birthday, dear Rina. Happy birthday.
we're in good company. Yeah. Ah, the, the paradox of time. Yeah, the paradox of time. People can simultaneously have too little and too much time. Where they're running between things, but then they're bored. They have something. They have to have something to entertain themselves. If I have a good moment, you have too little of that time. Is it possible to have uh, post scarcity in terms of happiness? Happiness? Not abundant. Then you will always need something else. Uh, if you are not happy, then you will need something. If you feel that, uh, I think I think in the f in that sort of world, your own self improvement and and the betterment of society, what you can contribute, would be a source of happiness. You know these altruistic, intrinsic uh, needs that you that, that we already have, but are, they're kind of muted in a capitalistic society, right? Right, because we're looking to to survive and to we're more focused on acquisition of gaining something um, and I think that's kind of what I was getting at earlier you know will there be a, two different types of people those who are still looking to acquire things and uh, more greed based I guess we could say uh, or individualistic and those who are um, Yeah, serving communities and just looking to looking for self empowerment, self improvement. Like in Star Trek, for example, that's that's the goal of their society in this far, far future. Uh, they're just constantly looking to improve and to gain more knowledge and to meet the other uh, species that exist. You know, of course, they're doing uh, intergalactic space travel. So, I mean, we're not quite that far in the future, but we're we're gonna we're looking to consider here how we achieve some sense of joy. Right? That's your question. How will we find joy when we're so used to needing things? Are we addicted to scarcity? Is that something that actually we we don't want to admit that we we like? We like the fact that we don't that not everything is freely available, and that we have this journey to to acquire, and we have to like rise up and build something. And is it is it part of a a challenge that might be taken away in a world of abundant goods? I think the instant gratification is um, is not something that lasts a, lo a long time in terms of being happy or uh, having worked for something and achieved something is um, long term I think more important or it's more gratifying than just simply buying something simply because you can if you work for it or not you just can also because you asked about purpose I suppose purpose in life or whatever at the moment at least we can go out every weekend without really achieving something during the week but rewarding ourselves uh, going out to drink to party without really achieving something which is a milestone if you want the transition may be from just meaningless requirement to working for something and then being happy about it I think that's more stable long term and maybe more it makes people maybe a little bit more yeah, more happy. It's also not a contradiction. Maybe in your twenties you are more materialistic and all that you get, maybe you start to transition into a, a different mindset where you think I want to do something for the community, I want to be more altruistic or my behavior should be a bit more thoughtful. So I think in uh, if you are thinking we are living what 80 years maybe uh, during your life you might change your focus and what you're talking about in uh, in the future for some people it just changes as uh, they get older so it's already we already are living through that. It's uh, interesting perspective. Yeah, I think it's it's important to consider where we find joy and I think in in this kind of world this you know this world that I'm presenting here we might have to shift our, our psychological or even spiritual position I don't know if it will happen within our generation uh, but I think in future generations it will it will have to happen and I think though it will come from these these intrinsic and altruistic things you know that's where we find happiness Um, in the future where where it's not so much about acquiring goods 
Uh, even for the young people, I think maybe young people are products of their environment, right? They're they're products of how they were raised. They they follow what their parents are doing. So if their parent and the parents are following what society is doing, typically. So when society changes, the parents change, the younger generation, maybe everyone is just more is that is that too far fetched to think about to to imagine? I just think that younger generation have a different uh, challenges than their parents and it can change very fast. For example, if your parents went uh, diving and they have their favorite spot uh, of diving, their children might not see the same things as their parents because it changes. For example, um, I'm coming back and times and times again to the environment. Uh, but even the size or the abundance of uh, wildlife changes. So, for example, there are a lot of young people, if you are going to Instagram, they take responsibility for things they did not cause, but they're trying to fix things. You have surfers or people who like to be at the sea and their beach is completely full of plastic trash. So they take the responsibility to clean it up, although they did not cause it. So the experience people have from a day-to-day -day basis, if they love something and they, they see a problem in, in the area they love, it can happen very fast that they are switching to taking responsibility for taking time and effort to fix the problem. You can see that all over the world, uh, this is how many companies are, not the old big one like uh, car companies, but small local companies, how they, uh, they come to life. They see a problem in their everyday life. If they love something, they see it's, it's not in a good situation and they try to fix it. With the connection we have with the internet and the knowledge and the technology, it's even easier to try to live more mini meaningful, if you, if you will, if that makes any sense. They're sort of intangible assets. I mean, that's what knowledge is, or that's what love is, or experiences. That's what experiences are. It's just a memory, something that you have for yourself that you can't uh, sell and put on the market. But already these are valuable to us. Everyone knows that. We all feel that. I mean, they, postcards will may, may produce cynic people. That's always a possibility. If there is no, no challenge, there is no contradiction in the life and uh, why we expect people will learn more, will discuss more, will think more, will think for other people. For example, uh, at the university I was a member of a revolutionary uh, leftist group and uh, I met uh, someone from uh, Cuba and uh, he was an instructor at our university. He was completely unaware what is the uh, history of Cuba and uh, socialism and communism and because he was uh, grown in a society where education was free and uh, health was free and, and he was happy and, uh, and I was really surprised. People become less happy when they have comparisons. <laughs> of course, altruism, people are altruistic in some sense. On the other hand, they are also uh, selfish. And how can we claim that if everything is abundant, and people will be more altruistic, more, will share more? Efficient, efficient, effective altruism. Have you heard of the term? Right, there's an Australian ethnicist called uh, Peter Singer. Right, he sort of uh, made this idea known to his students. One of these students actually took up this idea. So he went, went out and became, a, instead of a scholar, he became an investment banker. But he uses like the $200,000 a year and every year to buy mosquito nets to save as many lives as possible. Right, he used it as a both economically very shrewd but towards an altruistic goal. To him is one life is a life is a life, everything is the same. Right? It's a simple mathematics. 
So if you can save a life somewhere across the world, very far away, then it's your obligation, your duty to do so. Personally, I, I uh, would prefer a local approach because I think that if you start in your neighborhood, it might spread. So let's say um, the only thing you actually need is uh, knowledge and some will, free will or people who will come together to, to help you. So let's say you start in your neighborhood some project and if it works, it might encourage people around you and then it's, it's like a ripple effect on a, on a sea or on a lake. Because I think, uh, especially with altruism, you need a tangible uh, result. You need to see that it really makes a difference and it uh, improves people's lives. For it to be sustainable, it has to be somehow long-term. And you only have so much resources and energy to do things. So I guess your local problem, if you try to solve it and if people add you in that, I think that's a lot already. And it's not wrong, it's not a contradiction to say I'm selfish. That's why I want my my neighborhood to be clean and and uh, safe. Maybe there there is a point. Let's say if you want well to make everyone at that level, I, I don't have an answer to that question. Is it even uh, something you would wish for? I mean, not only as we stated, goals can change during your lifetime. Maybe you want to work for 20 years, but in your 40s you want to move to the countryside and live a quiet life. So not everybody has the same goals at the same time for once. Also, how would you apply one solution over the city? Let's not talk about globally. How would you apply one solution over a single city? Maybe there, there is a point. Let's say if you exercise altruism to the extreme globally, across everywhere, to say make everyone across the globe equal, what would be the result? The result would be probably a much lower average, but everyone is the same. Is that the goal most people would want to achieve? It, it would be the goal that Peter Singer would say is the worthy goal. Right, to make everyone across the globe the same now. I, I think we'll be probably at the level of below Mexico, somewhere around, better than Venezuela, but sort of around, around that, that, that region, right? the average, the global average. Is it worthwhile to make everyone at that level? I, I don't have an answer to that question. But if you say that everyone must be equal, and this very, this very radical, People are not part of that decision, and that's about their will. And what can a post-scarcity world be is dependent on how post-scarcity is going to happen. Yeah, yeah. This is actually maybe quite it. I was reading a long list of the curated Soviet jokes, like the jokes about Soviet Union. Maybe more than a half of the jokes are about scarcity. Like yeah. that they don't have any things in the store, yeah. right, in the shops. Yeah. So if you want to have a, if you want to force a social system, say like the Great Leap Forward, to have everyone uh, eat for free, that kind of thing, it tends to usually collapse because it's not managed with uh, the resources. Yeah. Right? It is not part of... It's, it's like the laws of physics. It's not how economics works. By, by declaring prices, etc., what you have is basically shortage. Nothing on the shelves. Right? It works... It has its own mechanisms of, of working, like gravity. So if we were to transition to a post-scarcity society, it has to be through some of the current mechanisms. Like Netflix, like Wikipedia, like things that are already happening. They have a operating model that is proven to work. I think that's a good ending point, as we're not going to solve everything in one night. Happiness has become banal in today's world, used in countless marketing campaigns, printed on shower curtains and t-shirts. We dare to ask what it might become among post-scarcity culture. One will always need something else, is what one of our members claimed as a rule. Are we black holes in this regard? 
How much more spiritual work is required before we can accept a future that, although radically different, benefits all on fundamental levels? Happiness doesn't come from things, though temporary highs do. I might argue that the highs and lows are what need managed. Are we addicted to scarcity? The fact that not everything is freely available? And what does this say about our current spiritual standing? Now, maybe it's not about being materialistic, rather a need to feel unique. That is to say, noticed, which is to say, loved by attaining something rare and valued, and to tie ourselves to that value. If it's a challenge that we seek, there will never be a shortage of those. Plenty of creative minds will open the floodgates of possibility, and the hungry mouth of technology will not cease craving input. As mentioned, we're already making headway with passion as our guiding post, a youth driven to taking responsibility for problems affecting areas of concern, especially natural resources, financial equality, transparent politics, and a general urge to share, echoing social media. Our final morsel dealt with cynics. What will we do with the cynics? Effective altruism was referenced here, an emerging philosophy that suggests no single life is more valuable than another and implores people to ask, what's the most good I can do, and follow through. Now maybe widespread adoption of a lifestyle based on this principle is enough to counteract cynicism, a feeling of oneness. Now what do you think, listener? How close are we to a world of abundant goods and an altruistic world order? Send us your thoughts. Thanks, as always, to our participants for joining, to Klunkerkranich for being Klunkerkranich, Always entertaining and a true portrait of Berlin. We are Enthusiasm.World. You can find us online at Enthusiasm.World, Facebook at EnthusiasmWorld, no dot, and on meetup.com in Berlin. Next episode, Professor Fear. Adios. Adios.